Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. I'm thrilled to be here with you for uh, line by line as we're studying through the Gospel of John. And of course, we're kind of accelerating here, certainly in the sense of going through the text as we come to the end of John's Gospel. But uh, today we're going to be looking at John chapter 16, the, the final passage of the farewell discourse. And I have to tell you, this is one of my favorite chapters of, of Scripture. Just when you take one chapter and consider all that can be in one chapter, and that a fairly short chapter, uh, John 16 is, uh, is one to which I regularly turn. But first, let's pray. Uh, Father, we're so thankful as we come before you that we can claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that we acknowledge you as creator and Lord over all, and that we thank you for the Holy Spirit who inspired the very words we are to read and who opens our eyes that we may see and who singularly convicted us of sin so that we would know of our need for Christ. Father, we thank you for all you have given us in yourself and in salvation and in your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, yesterday is a big day for me. It really was a very big day. Uh, by the way, I appreciate the concern from so many expressed here in this church and the death of my mom. And uh, we were away the last week uh, for her funeral and all the rest. But uh, she is now with the Lord, no longer in the grip of Alzheimer's disease. And for that, I'm very thankful, the sudden loss. But your, uh, your kindness has been has been very sweet. Several people in the church have reached out and prayed. Uh, we came back, and I reached a certain crisis point and had to, had to take action when I looked in the mirror and recognized I've got to have a haircut. I mean, this is no longer a matter of aesthetics. This is a matter of existential need. Uh, so when COVID hit, it's my first post-COVID, it's my first haircut in a year. Uh, yeah. Now, don't worry, I wasn't beginning to look like, you know, the missing link. I was cutting my own hair, uh, which is something I never thought I would do. But uh, when COVID came and I realized you're going to be completely shut down, we've tried so, Mary and I tried so hard, uh, given what we think is the responsibility for a school and, and, and people and all the rest, just to follow every rule and do everything right. So even when, even when they opened back up, uh, I didn't go. I thought, you know, I'm just going to try to stay the course. And so uh, some of you may have cut your own hair. Some of you men may have cut your own hair. Or, you know, it, it's not impossible. Uh, I, it's easier for us than for women, presumably. And uh, so I, anyway, I, I worked at it. Mary helped me with the back just to make sure that it was a trim. But here, here's my problem. I lost the baseline. I mean, I, I just started, you know, I had the clippers and the scissors. I looked in the mirror and I realized I don't, I don't anymore know where thing. I don't have any sense of what it's supposed to be. So I went to uh, get my hair cut yesterday. Uh, uh, a hair cuttery, the, the hair cutter is someone I had not known before. That's when I discussed how unimpressed a professional is about an amateur job. She just looked at me and said, who cut your hair? <laughs> and I said, uh, I did. She said, why? 
And I, I go, and then I said, COVID, she says, we've been open seven months. I mean, yeah, well, you, you know, lots of things I still don't do and haven't done. And I thought that would end the conversation, but no, no, in every other part. She, and, and I had already drawn her attention to this. I'd already diagnosed the problem. You know, just so, just so you know, there's no secrets among us. No professional has been doing this. This is, this is me. And, uh, but here's something what I discovered. Uh, when you're cutting your own hair, you learn there are two errors you can make, and one is less significant than the other. The two errors are cutting too much or too little. Logic tells a man that cutting too much is the worst of the two problems. But I noticed that she wasn't worried about that at all. All that to say, as, uh, as we are finally, we pray, seeing light at the end of the tunnel, and as we're working through all of this, it is interesting that as I was looking at some of what we've done just in recent months, I realized how the context of COVID does and doesn't change just all kinds of things. It doesn't change a thing about what the text means. It, it does change the, uh, the sense of what it means to be able to gather together and have even some of the normal conversations that you'd have about a text, some of the normal interactions you would have. But uh, just things that have happened in my life over the past few weeks, it's a reminder of, of how much is at stake. Uh, hair is about time. John's about eternity. And with eternity in view, we get to look at John chapter 16. The text begins as Jesus is continuing his farewell discourse. Now, remember that the farewell discourse is one discourse. It, it's, it's one teaching session, we might say, with Jesus and his disciples, because there's so much here, as you consider. We're, we're chapters into this one discourse. It's easy for us to think, well, he said this then, and then he said this other in another place, but this is presented as one discourse, and it's about to come to an end, and as is the case with any conversation like this or in any presentation like this, it is a discourse. Then the most powerful and perhaps the, the summative, the, the, the summation is going to be found here at the end. In John chapter 16, we begin by reading, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now, what has he said most importantly? In John chapter 15, he's talked about the hatred of the world. And, and he has talked about the, the fact that the world's going to hate us. The hatred of the world, he said, is, is going to be natural because the world hated me, therefore it's going to hate you. A servant's not greater than his master. If the, if the world hated me, the world will also hate you. And, and you know, the, the hatred was put in, in undiluted terms. This is a deadly hatred, after all. The hatred directed towards Christ is going to take him shortly to arrest and crucifixion. But the interesting thing is what Jesus says here in the next, the next phrase, because this picks up right after he's been talking about the, uh, the hatred that's going to come. He mentions the helper at the very end of chapter 15. He says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So hatred and helper. Hold those two together. The, the world is going to give us hatred, but Christ is going to give us the helper. 
uh, the helper is going to be sent to us. Now, when we're told, I said these things to you to keep you from falling away, does it mean the help or, or, or does it mean the hatred? And then the answer is yes. It's, it's, it's that entire passage. We shouldn't be surprised by the hatred of the world, but we must know that we are not alone. We have a helper, a sufficient helper. But the disciples knew very little about whom Jesus was speaking here. Much more is revealed here in John chapter 16. But before getting to the helper, even as he said, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away, he goes on to, to make very clear that hatred will take concrete form. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. At the Gospel Coalition uh, National Conference coming up, Dr. Tom Schreiner and I are going to do a session on the apostasy or falling away passages, and particularly one passage from the book of Hebrews and the historic evangelical understanding of, of that particular text. Both of us have written commentaries on Hebrews, and uh, given the general topic of the, and, and theme of the conference, it seemed like that was something that people wanted to know more about. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. But it is interesting that it's not just in Hebrews that you have a falling away uh, explicitly mentioned in Scripture. You have that same falling away mentioned here in John chapter 16. And that raises, of course, a huge question. It's a question I actually had to address in a different form of the briefing this week. And, and it, it means what kind of falling away is possible and who's falling away? How do they fall? How, how, how does one not fall? This is uh, historically the problem of apostasy. And uh, it, it's, it's a historical problem, it's a ministry problem, it's a witness problem, and, and yes, it's a, it's a theological, biblical problem. So you have someone who claims to be a Christian and, and is a professing Christian, and then they fall away. What do we do with that? Well, the, the biblical tensions are that there is a danger of falling away on the one hand, and on the other hand, there's the security of knowing just what Jesus said in this very gospel in John chapter 6, that those the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I'll by no means cast out. And, and Jesus speaking there in John chapter 6 about the fact that no one can snatch us out of his hand, it's speaking very clearly about what, what once we are Christ, we cannot become anything other than Christ. And at the same time, you have uh, other New Testament passages that make very clear the, what it means to be united with Christ and sealed with Christ. There's, there's no New Testament logic that anyone who's been united to Christ can be disunited from him. There, there, there's every New Testament uh, reason to believe that the one who is united with Christ uh, can never be ununited or disunited from him. But at the same time, there are those who fall away. And uh, the, the, this this was a pretty big issue uh, for evangelical Christians in the 20th century because you had organized forms of atheism and unbelief that really had not existed in previous centuries, and you had some uh, celebrity falling away. One of them was a man named Charles Templeton. He's a Canadian evangelist who had been a big friend of Billy Graham. And uh, this Canadian evangelist, Charles Templeton, was known as a, a very effective evangelist, had a very big name recognition, but Charles Templeton became an atheist. And uh, that, that created a huge problem 
Now, one of those problems, just the scandal of an evangelist becoming a becoming an atheist. I mean, how, how, how can that happen? If, if, if one's united to Christ, one cannot be disunited from him. If, if, if one, you're safe such that no one can come and snatch us out of Jesus' hand, if the, if the one who the Father gives to the Son will always come to the Son, and the Son will keep him forever. And how is that possible? But John, remember, that, that is the, the Apostle John, answers that question when uh, later in the New Testament he will say, they went out from us because they were not of us. And so in the church, there are those who are false believers. Sometimes they don't know they are. Uh, the parable of the sower and the soils plays into this and helps us to understand those, uh, the immediate signs of life and how difficult it is sometimes to discern. The, uh, the reality is that there are those who, who fall away. And, and John tells us it's because they never were united to Christ. They, they haven't been united and are now disunited. They never actually were united to Christ. And that's one of the reasons why you have apostolic exhortations such as make your calling and election sure. And, and, and that's, a, that's a very important New Testament theme as well. Um, you will know them by their fruit. And Jesus made that point over and over again in his ministry. Well, Jesus begins here by saying, I told you these things so that you will not fall away. And uh, the warning passage in Hebrews is a warning passage. It's, it's not a warning passage that those, and, and by the way, I'm, I can't do the whole thing uh, about Hebrews here, but you know, when, it's, when, it, when it speaks of tasting of, of, of salvation, I think it's exactly what you see in the parable of the sower in the soils, where there's a tasting of salvation that's not real salvation. You get that, that second soil, which is shallow, shows immediate signs of life. And so when we think about fruit and, and, and looking for evidence of authentic Christianity, it's not the evidence of immediate enthusiasm. It's the evidence of lasting commitment and, and fidelity to Christ. But as you're looking at this, and, and as we think about this, and by the way, I did have to talk about this on the briefing just this past week uh, because of uh, issues that come up in the aftermath of something like what happened in the tragedy of Ravi Zacharias. And, and the question comes, what about those who came to Christ by his preaching? Well, the reality is the gospel saves. The evangelist doesn't. An evangelist will fail, but the gospel never fails. The preaching of the Word of God never fails. The preaching of the Word of God continues. And this was a, a crisis in the early church, uh, especially at the end of the 3rd and the beginning of the 4th century, when there were those Christians under the persecution of Emperor Diocletian who were told to turn over their holy things and, and, and renounce the faith. And many of them did renounce the faith under persecution. They did turn over the holy things, including the the Bible, the, the handing over in the, became known as the Traditoris. The Traditoris were those who, who, who handed over the holy things. And then the question was, well, what about their ministry? Was, uh, and, and of course, they in the fourth century were looking at questions like apostolic succession and, uh, and ordination and sacramental ministry. And uh, Augustine, as is so often the case, answered this comprehensively. But our summary of it is simply be that even though there are preachers who fall away, the gospel never falls away. And that's actually what Jesus is going to talk about here. And, and we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are united to Christ. And, uh, and thus we can never be taken away. But there's still a warning lest we fall away. The same way in the book of Hebrews, there's a warning. 
And it's a real warning. It's, it's the same kind of warning that comes in the exhortation, make your calling and election sure. If you're, the kind of, if you're the kind who will fall away, you're the kind who never was united to Christ. But united to Christ, and this is where the Puritans are so helpful, just in a helpful, healthy, biblical spirituality, the Puritans said, look, God doesn't play games. It's simply a syllogism. A, a Christian is one who believes in Christ. I believe in Christ, therefore I'm a Christian. Uh, it's, uh, it's not a matter of trying to make us insecure, but Jesus wants to make the church, his believers, secure in him. But there's more to the story. The threat about being thrown out of the synagogue is exactly what we saw in John chapter 9. The man who was blind from birth, who was healed, and his parents are, are afraid. You know, when they're asked to attest to the, uh, the miracle, they, uh, they fumble all over themselves, throw their own son under the bus, and it's because they were afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue. Now, being thrown out of the synagogue is more than it sounds to us. Being thrown out of the synagogue means not just that you can't be a part of the synagogue, you have to join some other one. It means you're basically cut off from Israel. And that's one of the most horrifying things any Jew could imagine in the first century, to be thrown out of the synagogue, is to be cut off from one's people utterly and, and probably forever. And Jesus said, they're going to do that. They're going to throw you out of the synagogues. And, and by the way, throwing you out of the synagogue means what? In other words, what does that mean? Well, excommunication for Christians, what does that mean? It doesn't mean we don't like you. It doesn't mean you're a horrible sinner, and, uh, and therefore we're not going to have you in our midst. Excommunication means we've come to the judgment you're not a Christian. That's what excommunication means. We've come, we've come to the conclusion you're not a Christian, therefore you're not a part of our church. Uh, uh, or if you are a Christian, you are in such deep rebellion that to have you in our church is the refutation of Christianity. It's a, it's a contradiction of Christianity. That being cast out of the synagogue was to be cut off utterly, and, and the patrimony no more. And, and, I mean, frankly, you're just not Jews anymore. You're no longer welcome here. If you're not welcome in the synagogue, you're not welcome anywhere. So the social cost, the theological cost here is very high. And Jesus said, it's not just that they're going to throw you out of the synagogue, they're going to kill you. And, and it's this horrifying logic we just read in the text in which we're told that the one who kills you will think he's doing God's business. Now, that, that's a horrible, horrible thing to hear. But headlines make very clear this is not just a first century issue. There, there are those who will believe they're doing God's will in killing those who are united to Christ. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Very, very sweet from Jesus. Just, just remember, Jesus at several points says, I'm telling you this, it will mean more to you later. Jesus goes on as he speaks in verse 4, as it continues, he said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Now wait just a minute. Wow, wow. There's a, this, this is so concentrated. Jesus said, I didn't tell you these things in the beginning because you didn't need to know them then. That's just absolutely fascinating. It's like, it's like a father speaking to his children. You know, when the children are young, he doesn't say, no, when I'm with you no more, uh, because he's there. And, and he, 
at least his intention is to be there, to, to, to raise them, to, to, to be there for them. There will come a time when, uh, when he will be taken from them, but, but it's not now. And it's the same way with Jesus. When Jesus said, I need to talk to you about when I wasn't going to be with you because I was going to be with you through what we know as the three years of his earthly ministry. And, and so there's a reason why the things said at the end are said at the end. But the urgency is underlined by this. I didn't need to talk to you about this before, but li- listen up. I need to talk to you about this now. You know, this, this, this is now. So pay close attention. And, and he says, going back to this theme... He says, I, I'm leaving you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. He's clearly speaking of the Father. And again, the logic of the Gospel of John is so clear in this because Jesus over and over and over and over again tells us, you know, the Father sent him. He tells the big picture of the incarnation and how the Father sent him. This is how John begins the prologue by telling us that it's the, it's the Father who has sent the Son, but the Son is returning to the Father who sent him. Now, there's a lot, in terms of biblical theology, you have to understand how much is included in that because this entire sentence basically is uh, analogous to what you see when Jesus at the end of the crucifixion says it is finished. Because Jesus hasn't decided he's been here long enough. That's not it. Jesus has accomplished what the Father sent him to do. And, and so it was never Jesus' purpose to come to earth in the incarnation and and, and in this great chapter, the chapter of redemption, his purpose was never to come and to stay, incarnate among us, even resurrected incarnate among us. He's ready now to return to the Father, but he's not going to leave us alone. None of you ask me, where are you going? Because the, the, he is more or less saying, you, you understand that by now. But then he notices, and this is so sweet, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. It must have been just incredibly apparent to Jesus that the disciples' response to this is just sorrow. And we can understand that. They're all of a sudden in what can only be described as grief and perhaps even panic in the fact that Jesus is leaving them. He's leaving them like like sheep without a shepherd. The most amazing verse, perhaps in the entire Gospel of John, is verse 7. And I think verse 7 of John chapter 16 is a verse that most Christians never really take adequately into consideration. Fully into consideration. Squarely into consideration. Here's what Jesus says, because it is so counterintuitive to a superficial Christianity. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Again, let's be honest. Isn't that just as counterintuitive as anything you could imagine? Jesus says, you'll be better off when I'm not with you? How, how can that be possible? To whom are we united? To whom do we belong? Who has saved us? Who is the good shepherd? Whose sheep are we? How, how can it be to our advantage that he leaves us? And Jesus says, well, if I don't leave, you will not have the Holy Spirit. If 
And I will send the Holy Spirit. By the way, filioque clause, you think of the great, the great distinction between um, Western Christianity and Eastern Christianity over whether or not the Father sends the Spirit or the Father and the Son send the Spirit. Western Christianity, that means Catholicism and Protestantism, clearly affirm the Holy Spirit is sent by both the Father and the Son. Here's the text in which Jesus says that he's sending the Spirit. Not merely the Father who sends. It's the, so there you see the Trinitarian pattern. The Son obeys the Father. The Spirit obeys the Father and the Son. Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go because the Helper will come. And I will send him to you at the end of verse 7. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin. Let's say, put it this way, in righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now again, how many Christians understand that Jesus' farewell discourse doesn't really end, it just stops? And it's because Jesus says, in, in space, time, and in eternity, he's in, he's in a space-time continuum. If these things are going to happen, they're going to happen. And that means he cannot, he cannot just keep giving them what he wants to teach them, he's going to have to turn the teaching to another, and that is the helper who will come. And notice how the helper's teaching is described, he will teach you my truth. So there is more Jesus wants to say, but we're not going to hear it from Jesus directly. We will receive it from the Holy Spirit. And that, that's what we believe happens even in the preaching of the Christian church. This is the Protestant centrality of preaching. What we are doing is hearing from Jesus through God's Word by the ministry of the Holy Spirit what He would tell us right now. It's astounding and you say, well, you know, in other words, every time you come together for Christian preaching, it's the continuation of Jesus' farewell discourse. These are the other things we need to know that the Holy Spirit's going to reveal to us. And, and the amazing thing is that we are told this is a better situation for the church. This is a better dispensation for the church. It doesn't feel better. I'm sure it, it couldn't have felt better to the disciples how can it be better, Jesus, if you are not with us? And there are a couple of absolutely astounding issues that come to light here. This chapter just blows open biblical theology. For one thing, Jesus is in a space-time continuum. The, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus incarnate is in a space-time continuum in the sense that he can only be in one place at one time. He, 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 is, he is in history. He increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. We do not have a 2,000-year-old incarnate Christ walking the earth as a spectacle. 
in all places and at all times, the Holy Spirit, who is not bound by any incarnational dimension, is the Spirit of Christ and mediates Christ to us, all Christians, everywhere, all the time. Again, have we thought that through? Have we thought it through that, that Jesus began the church? Just think of Matthew chapter 16. He began the church with those disciples and, and with the, the followers, the larger band, including, you know, you, it's not just the disciples, not just those who will be called the apostles. It's also the believers, uh, people like Mary and Martha and others you could just consider who have joined and are a part, uh, are in Christ. And uh, yet now the church is a global reality. And not only that, in biblical theology, the closing of the age comes when the gospel has been proclaimed to all nations. Well, that comes by a Holy Spirit ministry. And, and there's more here about the Holy Spirit because the work of the Holy Spirit turns out to explain the church even as the work of Christ explains the church. And what we have here in the work of the Holy Spirit is astounding. It's humbling, actually, but it's astounding. He says, I will send him to you. And when he comes, look at verse 8. Number one, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The first is sin. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. We're told that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. Now, this does not mean that every single person in the world is going to come to saving faith in the, United, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to come to saving faith because he or she is convicted of sin. It, it, does, it means this is another, this is where the world passages, all the world. It, it, it means that without the Holy Spirit, no one's going to come to Jesus. It's astounding. There's no church without the Holy Spirit because without the Holy Spirit, no one comes to Jesus. When we read here concerning sin, um, the conviction of sin, we're told concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So here's something else. How is it that anyone believes in Christ? How does that happen? How is it? What explains it? The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. Now, here's the thing. If Jesus did not go and the Holy Spirit did not come, no one would be convicted of sin. It's astounding. The conviction of sin is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the first sin is the refusal to believe in Christ. That's the, that's the basic, basic sin. And who can break through that sin? Only the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, no conviction of sin... No conviction of sin, no Christians, no Christians in church. It's not just a convicting of sin. Concerning righteousness, verse 10, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. He'll convict the, sin, he'll convict the world, we're told, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning righteousness... Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. We've well, got to think about that. What? Righteousness? Because you'll see me no longer and I'll go to the Father? What does that mean? Well, biblical theology helps us. The Gospel of John and its 
canonical context helps us, what he's saying is he will have accomplished a substitutionary atonement, the purpose for which he came, such that, just as Paul will explain in Romans chapter 3, the righteousness of God is now imputed to us by faith. He, he, is, he has accomplished. It was righteousness for Christ to obey the Father, even unto death. It's a substitutionary saving righteousness. It's an imputational righteousness. Even as our sin was imputed to Christ, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us by faith, as Paul will make clear in the book of Romans. And you look at it and you say, well, okay, th- this is extremely helpful. So the Holy Spirit will convict of sin, and, and not only that, of, of, of righteousness. And, and this means multiple things. It certainly means it will convict sinners of the fact that the sinner does not have this righteousness. And then will attract sinners who desperately, eternally need this righteousness to Christ. But it, it's because Jesus is no longer here. But why is he no longer here? Ask that. So he's no longer here, not because his mission was terminated, but because his mission was accomplished. Again, those words, it is finished. There is no more death that Jesus could die that would add to our salvation. There is no more suffering that Jesus could endure to affect our salvation. There is, there is no more. When, when Jesus said, it is finished, those are some of the most, well, they, I think they are the most conclusive words spoken until the Lord returns. His, his, his mission was not terminated. It was accomplished in full. But there's a, there's a third aspect to the Spirit's work, the convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So the confirmation of judgment or the conviction of judgment here is not so much the conviction of, say, the judgment on individual sin, etc. It's, it's the grand judgment of God. The fact the Holy Spirit will convict the sin of the fact that there is a judgment coming. And, and that judgment will be according to the righteousness of God. And that judgment will extend even to the evil one. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. That means everyone's going to be judged. This is, this, this is clearly a reference to Satan this judgment is coming. I mentioned uh, the other day the, uh, the great Southern Baptist preacher in Memphis for so many years. His name was R.G. Lee. And uh, he was one of those titanic figures of the 20th century. And, you know, Southern Baptist preacher in a white suit in a giant church in Memphis. And uh, he was a fiery preacher. And his most famous sermon, which he ended up preaching all over the country, was entitled payday someday. And it was about divine judgment. And when, uh, when you look at that sermon, you, you look at it and you recognize its evangelistic effectiveness must have had a great deal to do with the fact that intuitively sinners know there's a judgment coming. Because when you look at the sermon, it's not as if he was telling them something they didn't know at all. He's using the text of Scripture to take their fear of judgment from an intuition to concrete reality. Payday, someday. And it's the Holy Spirit that convicts us concerning that judgment. 
we would have no evangelism thus without the Holy Spirit's work, convicting of sin and righteousness and judgment. But we do have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit who is doing and singularly is doing this work of convicting, which is what we can't do. As Martin Luther said to his, his preachers in the Wittenberg College, he said, you go and preach the Word. Your job is to get the message of the Scripture from your mouth to their ears because beyond that you can't go. But the Holy Spirit takes that Word and does what only the Holy Spirit can do. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. Luther was not a Baptist. When Luther was once asked, at a moment of crisis in the Reformation in Wittenberg, you know, how was it that the Reformation came? And that very same sermon, the Invocavit sermon from 1521, when, uh, when Luther was asked, how was it that the Reformation came? He said, you ask how the Reformation came, and he said, I preached the word, and while I slept, God did this thing. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't a Baptist, and that's why he had to clean it up a little, because what he actually told his students was, when I slept and drank beer with Peter, who was his friend, uh, God did this thing. He just meant, I preach the word, and then I go on with life, and I sleep, and uh, God does this thing, and God did that thing, and God does this by his word. We, we preach the word, and then we sleep, and while we sleep, God does this thing, and it's by the Holy Spirit. And it also reminds us that we cannot see the work of the Holy Spirit. We, we can't see it immediately. So when we share the gospel, we preach the word, we present Christ to someone, and it looks like it's to no effect. Well, you don't just go away saying, well, that was a failure. You go away praying the Holy Spirit will convict of sin and righteousness and judgment while we sleep. In verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Don't worry, this briefing, this discourse, this teaching, this sermon can't last forever. Here's good news, the Holy Spirit will. And the Holy Spirit will continue to reveal all that I want to give you and will give you, but can't give you now. This, too, is uh, progressive even beyond the lifetimes of the disciples to whom Jesus was speaking here. So uh, things were revealed to them during their earthly lifetimes, but not all things. Some things have been revealed to us that were not known to the disciples, and let me be very careful. That doesn't mean any addition to Scripture. It simply means there, there are there are challenges that the churches had to confront since the time of the disciples that's required the ministry of the Holy Spirit to reveal what it is that we are to do. And there will come a day when those who are in the terminal generation will need to know things from the Holy Spirit that we could not understand now. There's a, there's a progression here, and it's not just a progression from one lifetime, from child to adolescent to adult. It's the it's progression of the church through history until Jesus comes. 
Holy Spirit's only going to teach what I want him to teach, says Jesus. And you'll notice it is a, it is a masculine pronoun here. Just don't, don't let anyone confuse you about that. Holy Spirit's not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. Pronouns are very clear. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Wonderful. He's going to take my truth, declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Well, that's astounding. I mean, look, look, look at the door that's just been opened there. Jesus says, I'm going to reveal to the Spirit what the Spirit will reveal to you, and the Father has given to me everything. So it's actually, it's not just, it, it's this Trinitarian act in which what the Father wants his Son's own to know will be mediated to us from the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, and but you'll, you'll notice the order. The knowledge is given from the Father to the Son, from the Son to the Spirit, from the Spirit to the church. It's just incredible. When we hear from the Holy Spirit, we're hearing from the Father, the Creator, the one who made the world. We, we will never learn anything that's not Trinitarian. Have you thought about that? Well, we will never as Christians learn anything that's not Trinitarian. It takes all three persons of the Trinity for us to know anything. Because it's a gift of knowledge from the Father to the Son, from the Son to the Spirit, from the Spirit to us. And that helps us also to understand the Trinitarian shape of the Christian faith, which means we, 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 do, not, we do not need only the Father. Now, the Father gives us all we need because it's the Father who sends the Son. But the point is, He does send the Son. There is a mediator between God and man. And, and, and this reminds us we need a mediator. There, there, there will never be a time when we can have a relationship with God the Father except that which is possible and actual through the Son. There isn't any other relationship. The only way we can know anything about the Father is that we belong to the Son because the Father is revealed to the Son and the Son gives us to us. But between Jesus and the church, there is the Holy Spirit, the Helper. I just find that astounding. I wonder how many Christian preachers who get it to preach recognize this is a Trinitarian act. What, what I'm getting ready to preach from the Word of God, it can only be mediated to God's Word by the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit got it from the Son who got it from the Father. It's this entire Trinitarian act, and that's why the preaching of the Word of God glorifies the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The obedience to the Word glorifies the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Disobedience to the Word is disobedience to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. We are not going to conclude John chapter 16, which is the conclusion of the high priestly, excuse me, of the farewell discourse. We're about to enter into the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, which is in biblical theology as astounding as John chapter 16, and maybe more so. It's the only place in all of Scripture where exactly what we're talking about here is revealed to us. What is the relationship? What is the transfer of knowledge? What, what, what is the logic between the Father and the Son? How do we know? Well, we know because we have one prayer from Jesus, this monumental prayer in which we are given 
unprecedented access into the relationship between the Father and the Son. That's coming in John chapter 17. But in the end of John chapter 16, as we shall see, Jesus speaks of sorrow being turned into joy. And this doesn't seem possible because he said to them, uh, I can tell you're, so, you're so anxious. I can, I can see your sorrow because I'm going to be leaving you. But, but we will read it now. Verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I have come from God, that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, next Lord's Day morning, Lord willing, when we turn to this text, we're going to see some fascinating things. We're going to see the disciples say that Jesus is no longer speaking figuratively when Jesus is actually saying the very same things he said before, beginning back in John chapter 13. What's changed is not what Jesus is saying. What's changed is their ability to understand what Jesus is saying. And all of a sudden, you're not speaking in figures. Well, he's speaking exactly as he spoke before. But it now begins to make sense to them. And the other thing we're going to see as we look to this passage, as we come to the conclusion of the farewell discourse, is that Jesus mixes together fundamental, most important encouragement with sober warning. Sober warning. And we need that too. So when we are together next, we will turn to these last paragraphs of John chapter 16 and 
Get ourselves ready for the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, and we'll pray the Lord will bless our study today and our meditation upon God's Word and the message that will follow and bring us back next week to be confronted by His Word again. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you have given us in these verses from John chapter 16. Father, thank you for revealing to us our need for the Holy Spirit and your provision with Christ of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for making very clear that every truth we know has been given to us by the Father, through the Son, through the Spirit. Father, our utter dependence upon you is just amplified by this understanding, as is our need for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and our Helper, the Holy Spirit. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we now pray. Amen.